0: Grab your Bible and turn with me to Romans chapter 6. My house right now, words are very important. I have an almost two-year-old son who's learning new words every day. And he loves to run around and scream those words at the top of his lungs, which is a little scary because he repeats everything I say. I also have a -a four-and-a-half-year-old who knows a lot of words, but she doesn't always know what they mean. She takes things very literally. So when we use certain expressions, she gets a little confused. For example, one night my wife was busy cooking dinner, and Charlotte, our our four-year-old daughter, she needed a little help with something, and my wife Amber said, well, Charlotte, you're going to have to do this on your own right now. I can't stand on top of you right now. And Charlotte was very disturbed that her mother would ever stand on top of her. Another time, Charlotte was carrying around something heavy, and I said to her, I said, babe, you need to be careful with that. If you drop that on your foot, you're going to be toast. (laughs) And she looked at me totally bewildered and said, this will burn me? (laughs) It's a little confusing, right? Words are important because words mean something. And when we don't understand a word or we misunderstand a word, then things can get a little confusing. And this is especially true when it comes to the Bible, if this book contains the words of life, if faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, then it's very important that we get these words right, that we understand them. But here's the thing. The Bible was originally written in another language, in another time, in another culture, so sometimes things get lost in translation. There are words that just don't come naturally to us, and we have to seek them out and study what they mean, words like righteousness. Righteousness justification and propitiation. Do you remember that one? Those are words that we do not commonly use in our everyday language, so we may not understand them at first blush. However, there's one particular word from the Bible that we all know. We're very familiar with it as Christians, yet I believe it has been greatly misunderstood and even downright abused. It may very well be the most misunderstood word in the whole world, Bible, which, look, happens to be our title today. It's this word. It's the word grace. We use that word grace a lot in our daily vocabulary, and it can mean a lot of different things in the English language. For example, grace can mean elegance. Like we, we might say, well, she walks gracefully. Sometimes by grace we mean courtesy, like he, he was gracious to me. Or it can be more like approval. We might say, I was in his good graces. Where I come from, we also say grace, right? That's sometimes what we call praying before a meal. We can even grace someone with our presence, as I've done for you this morning. (laughs) That wasn't that funny. Uh, No. So there's a lot of uses for that word grace. But we know as Christians, grace is absolutely essential to what we believe. In fact, many people have said that you could sum up the whole Christian faith with the one word, grace. Often we hear grace defined this way. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward sinners. That's the way I defined it a few weeks ago in my sermon, and I do believe that's a good definition. Unmerited favor means God chooses, despite what we deserve, despite our sinning, he chooses to be kind to us and good to us and love us ultimately through sending his son Jesus. But this is where the abuse comes in. Sometimes Christians view grace as merely a golden ticket to heaven. Grace becomes simply a free pass they got when they accepted Jesus. And now that means they can live however they want in the present, in the present. Essentially, grace becomes a license to sin. And this is not only true, it's not just a problem in our day. But people have been abusing grace this way from the very beginning. This was an issue the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, addressed many times, and we're going to see he does that today in the book of Romans. In this letter to the Roman church, Paul has been laying out for us the fullness of the gospel message, all the depth, and he's explained so far that though we're sinners and deserve God's wrath and judgment, we've been freely given God's grace through Jesus, and and now we can be saved if we put our faith and faith alone in him. But Paul wants to make abundantly clear that this is not just a thing of the past. It's not like, oh, Jesus died, I accepted it, and now I move on with my life. No, he wants us to see the gospel changes everything. And at the heart of this radical change is the most misunderstood word in the Bible, the word grace. So today, Paul is going to clear up any misconceptions we might have about this all-important word, and he's gonna explain to us the power Of real, true grace. So let's walk through this passage verse by verse, and we'll come in at the end and apply it in two different ways. But look with me first at Romans chapter 6. Let's start with verse 15. The Apostle Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look in your Bible, look at chapter 6, look at verse 1, and then look at verse 15. Do you see how those verses are similar? Same thing. Paul is posing this question concerning grace, and he responds in the same way. The first question in verse 1, that's what Alan, our church planning resident, preached on last week. Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, hey, if sin gets me God's grace, then maybe I should just sin all the more. And he responds, what does he say? By no means. It means no way, absolutely not. And he proceeded to show that we've died to sin. That was last week. In today's passage, the question is, well, hey, since I'm under grace, then can I just sin without consequence? Does my sin really even matter at all since it's already been covered by grace? I think that's the question that's at the heart of how many people misunderstand grace. This is where grace gets abused. As we said earlier, some people think, hey, I've got grace. And when I sin again, God will just give me more grace. So this means I can do whatever I want, right? I remember thinking that way as a kid. Like I would want to do something I knew was bad or say something I knew was bad. And I would tell myself, well, I'll just ask for forgiveness afterwards. (laughs) And God will forgive me and it will all be okay, right? Did you ever think that way? It's so ridiculous. We know that. Like, we understand that doesn't make any sense. There's no relationship in the world where that could possibly turn out well. Think about it this way. At our wedding, my wife committed herself. She promised to love me and stick with me unconditionally no matter what. So that must mean I can go and do whatever I want and she'll still be my wife. Like, I don't need to help around the house. I don't have to ever come home. I don't even really need to talk to her, spend time with her. Why does it matter? She promised to stick with me, right? How well do you think that's going to go over? Not very well, right? So why do we think that way with God? And what we're doing is taking advantage of God's grace, and we're fundamentally misunderstanding what grace is. So Paul says emphatically, by no means. And then he explains why grace is not a license to sin. Look at verse 16. He says, Do you not know that if you, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But well, Paul begins here this illustration he's going to use throughout the passage, and that illustration is slavery. And it's important, whenever we see the word slavery in the Bible... We do need to understand that first century slavery was different from how we think of slavery today. Because of our nation's history, when we hear that word slavery, we think of chattel slavery and the transatlantic slave trade. That kind of slavery was the kidnapping of African people and forcing them into a life of slavery. The Old Testament actually condemns that kind of man-stealing. The punishment for that, the Old Testament says, is death. The Old Testament also taught that slaves were to be freed every seven years in the nation of Israel. We also know that most slaves in the first century chose to be slaves because of their poverty. It wasn't based on their race or ethnicity. And that's why Paul uses that word present. Someone would present themselves to a wealthy person and agree to be their slave with the hopes of buying their freedom and moving up the social ladder. Now, this was still not a good thing. Slavery of any form or fashion is a violation of human dignity. And we know there was abuse and mistreatment of slaves even in this first century system. But it was a bit different from the slavery we've learned about in our history. And that difference is important to see for this passage. Paul's point in using slavery as an image is to show us that the key is obedience. What we obey becomes our master. So when we choose to sin, we're making sin our master and we're becoming its slave. And this is so foreign to what our culture says and believes today. Our culture talk, talks a lot about freedom. Our culture identifies freedom as being able to do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. And we see this especially with the sexual revolution. Sexual freedom, they say, is the ability to love and sleep with whoever, whenever. But the truth is, that's not real freedom. That's actually slavery to sin. You may think you're living this wild and crazy and free life and just doing whatever feels right in the moment, but you're actually just obeying your master, which is sin. Living a life of sin is a form of slavery. Sin becomes your master, and as the verse says, this leads to death. Isn't that interesting? What so many people will believe will give them the life and the happiness and the fulfillment they so desperately want will actually lead to their death. And here's the flip side to that. Paul says obedience to God leads to righteousness. Here's what this means. Now, if you're the note-taking type, if you want to write in the margin of your Bible or write in the notes you're taking, this is really important. Write this down. True freedom is found in obedience to God. True freedom is found in obedience to God. And that sounds strange because it's kind of a paradox, right? We think obeying someone else means I don't get to do what I want. means I'm not free. That's what people think about Christianity. Lost people think, they say, well, if I follow Jesus, then I have to give up all my freedom. I have to stop doing this, and I can't do that, and then I just can't have any fun in life. What people miss is that following Jesus and obeying him is where true freedom is found. That's where true fulfillment and purpose come from. I'll never forget one year I was doing student ministry back in Tennessee, and after our student service, I invited any student who wanted to, to be saved to stick around. And two young men stayed right there at the front in their seats. Everybody else left. So I, I laid out the gospel and I asked them if they wanted to, to give their lives to follow Jesus. One of the guys, he he was looked conflicted, and he said to me, He said, I I got a question. He said, if I follow Jesus, does that mean I can't sleep around with whoever I want anymore? I said, well, yeah, but it means a lot more than that. I tried to explain that whatever fulfillment he found in that lifestyle, he would find so much more in Jesus. But he couldn't see past it, and he walked away from Christ that night he could not see that he was actually in bondage, that he was a slave to his sin, and that true freedom is found only in obedience to Jesus. Let's keep going, verses 17 and 18. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul right here, he makes a big turn. And he's reminding us of our identity, who we are. A few important things to note here. First off, there's no in-between. There's no neutral life. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. See, before Jesus, we were slaves to sin. We could not not sin. Sin was our master. But when we trusted in Christ, he freed us from sin and we became a slave to him. The next thing to note is that we become obedient from the heart. When we are saved, God changes us from the inside out. He changes our heart. He takes away our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And then we're able to obey the standard of teaching to which we committed. And let me make this clear. Christianity does have a standard of teaching. There are rules, and obedience to Jesus is expected for those who follow him. Yes, this is a religion of grace, but that doesn't mean we're not supposed to live in a certain way. The difference, though, with Christianity is that this obedience comes out of a changed heart. It doesn't come by sheer willpower, or trying your best to be a good moral person. We're able to obey the standard of teaching because we've been freed from sin and made slaves to righteousness. See, God saves us. then we obey. God gives us His grace then that grace leads to our obedience. So yes, we do obey rules. We do live a certain way, but that's only possible because of who we have become in Christ. And this is the key to every command we see in the Bible. Paul models it for us in his letters. If you read through Paul's letters, you see he always starts with the gospel. He always wants us to make sure we know who we are in Christ. And then comes the commands. And the commands are rooted in the identity So we're not obeying for our our salvation, we're obeying from our salvation. We do not obey to earn God's love and grace, we obey because of God's love and grace. See, what we do flows out of who we are. Our obedience is driven by our identity. So with our identity, as people freed from the slavery of sin, living in freedom, slavery to God, here comes the command. Look at verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Paul has done this once before in Romans. He kind of takes a moment to explain himself. Do you see that? He says, "I'm, I'm speaking in human terms. That means he's trying to take something that is of God And bring it down to our level. That's why he uses this slavery imagery to help our little pea brains, okay, understand this supernatural truth. And out of this analogy comes the challenge. He says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to sin, so now present them as slaves to righteousness. And he uses that word members to speak to all of us. We're called to present our bodies, our minds, our hearts, our desires, everything. We must actively take every part of us and commit ourselves as slaves of righteousness. But hang on a second. Didn't you just say we already are slaves of righteousness? Why then does he now say we need to present ourselves as slaves of righteousness? Is this a contradiction? Well, no, remember, we have our identity, we are saved, we are slaves to God. But this does not mean we are automatically perfect and holy. Sometimes we mistakenly think that way. Like once I accept Jesus and I get enough of him, then I won't want to sin anymore. I'm going to love church and I'm going to love reading the Bible and I won't cuss when I stub my toe anymore and I won't think anything bad. But I think we know that's not the case, is it? As Christians, we live in this in-between stage they call the already and the not yet. We have already been saved by Jesus. We are new creations. We are forgiven and free, but we're not home yet. We still have a sin nature to battle with. We still live in this broken, fallen world, and we will not be perfect until we get to heaven. So in the meantime, in this tension we live in, we have to take who we are, our identity, and we have to apply it in the way we live. There's work to be done on our part. The Christian life is not just sitting back and going to church and reading your Bible, and then you naturally become this great godly person. No, we have a role to play. We have to discipline ourselves. We have to choose to obey, to honor the Lord in the way we live. But here's the good news. We don't do this in our own strength. No, God gives us grace to obey. This is the part of grace that we often misunderstand. Grace is not just something that God gave you in the past when he saved you and said, okay, he's got enough, he's good. No, God is still giving you grace right now to sustain you and grow you into the image of Christ. And this is what the Bible calls sanctification. Big word alert. It's a big word. We see it right there at the end of verse 19, sanctification. What does that mean? Here's a definition I like. Sanctification is the cooperative work of God and Christians by which ongoing transformation into greater Christ-likeness occurs. Notice it's a a cooperative work between God and me. God works his grace in us and we respond to his grace by working ourselves. Grace is like a power that transforms us and we respond to it. I like to think of it like uh, canoeing down a river. You ever been canoeing? We did that a lot in Tennessee. We had rivers. We'd go canoe trips. and When you're canoeing, it's the current that really does the work of pulling you downstream. But you have to cooperate with that current. When canoeing, you have two options. You can fight against the current and make things really hard on yourself, or you can steer along and paddle with the current. Either way, you're going to get downstream, but one way is a lot easier than the other. That's how sanctification works. God's grace is like the current pulling us downstream, and we cooperate with that by presenting our members to righteousness. We obey, we practice the spiritual disciplines, and over time we become more and more like Jesus. See, see, that's the goal of sanctification. That's really the goal of your life. If you ever wonder, what's my purpose? What should I be doing? What am I here for? Your purpose is to become and look like Jesus. That's the goal. Let's look at the last section here and see the result of being a slave to God instead of sin. Verses 20 through 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul wants us to look back again at our lives before Jesus. When we were slaves to sin, what fruit came from our sin? What did we get for doing what he calls the things of which we're now ashamed? What was the result of our supposed freedom? It was death. And that's what we see in one of the most well-known verses in all of the Bible. For the wages of sin is death. Remember our discussion about that word wage. Wage is something you're owed. You work a job, you earn a wage. So when we sin, what we earn is death. That's our payment. But here's the alternative. Paul says that's the way things used to be. That was the old you before Jesus. And now you've been set free from sin. You're a slave to God. And here's the result. Life. Not just any life, eternal life. That's the second half of Romans 6, 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I love to use that verse to share the gospel with people because do you see that difference? Where a sin brings wage, it's what we deserve. Salvation is a free gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. And where sin leads to eternal death, salvation leads to eternal life. That's the power of grace. And again, it highlights how we often misunderstand that word. Grace is not just a ticket we get in the past. It's a transforming power that gives us new life even now. Yes, we received grace back when we were saved, but we receive grace now in the present, and we will receive grace fully forever in heaven. We'll experience God's grace in all his fullness with no sin or death or anything to disrupt it. So let's remember Paul's original question here. Since we're under grace, does that mean we can sin and do whatever we want without consequence? He says, no way. Because when you sin, you're becoming a slave to God or a slave to sin. And that's not who you are anymore. We are now slaves to God. We live for him. So in light of this passage, let me give you quickly two takeaways this morning. Here's the first. Number one. Grace does not free us to sin. What we've been given in Christ is amazing. Though we've sinned in endless ways and we deserve God's judgment, God chose to send his son to take our place. He chose to forgive us of every sin we've ever committed and never will commit. He chose to give us new life and make us his children. That's what makes grace so amazing. That's why we sing that song. But grace is not a hall pass to do whatever we want grace does not mean our actions and choices are meaningless grace does not excuse us to sin and it's so easy with a sermon like this for us to say well I don't do that that's those other people I don't excuse my sin and justify it they need to hear that those people I bet hope they're listening we do that a lot with sermons I'm speaking for myself too The reality is we all abuse grace from time to time. And what we need to do today is take an honest assessment of where we do that. Where in your life are you allowing sin to be your master? Paul tells us we need to present our members. We said that means every part of us. So let's use that framework to kind of think through some different areas where we might fail to present our whole selves to the Lord. Think with me first about your mind. Your mind. Do you present your thoughts to sin or to God? Do you spend time reading or listening or watching things that make you angry? Do you stew in that anger towards other people who disagree with you or believe differently than you? What about worry? Do you allow yourself to become trapped in sinful fear through your thoughts? Next, let's think about your eyes. Do you give in to lust and look at someone who's not your spouse inappropriately? Do you spend inordinate amounts of time scrolling social media or binging things on TV? What about your hands? Do you ever allow your hands to become slaves to sin by putting your job or your career or money in the place of God? Do you spend too much time with your hobbies and escapes? What about your feet? Do you present your busy schedule to God or to sin? Do you go and go and go and go to the neglect of your family or spending time with the Lord? And lastly, what about your heart? Do you love the people that Jesus has called you to love, including your enemies? Do you allow your heart to worship other things in God's place? Look, we we all have these blind spots where we, we justify our sin, where we use grace as a license to do what we really want and excuse it. But grace does not free us to sin. It actually frees us not to sin. Don't miss that. Grace frees us not to sin. Because we have the Holy Spirit working in us, we now have a choice. We can choose to not sin. We don't have to do that anymore. We can choose to walk in holiness. Sin is no longer our master. We don't have to obey that old part of us for those old habits and struggles. We're free. So that's first. Grace doesn't free us to sin. Here's the second takeaway. Number two, grace frees us to be slaves to God. And there's that strange paradox again, but it's true. Real freedom is found in becoming a slave to God. When we obey God and we follow his will and his way, that's where we find true freedom. That's where we find our purpose. And look, I I know God's way is not the easy way. Doesn't always offer instant gratification like sin does. Doesn't always feel good or, or feel right in the moment and it won't make you popular in the world's eyes. But God's way is the way of freedom. Listen to me, God's way is always better than sin. It's always better. It's always worth it to obey God. So here's the question we need to ask ourselves as we close today. Who is your master? Are you still living as a slave to sin? Maybe you think you're free. Maybe you you believe you're living however you want, making your own choices and going your own way. But apart from Jesus, the Bible says you're a slave to sin. And the good news is you can be free today if you'll turn away from your sin, give up your old life and follow Jesus. The prison door unlocks, the gate swings open, and you are free forever to live your purpose. Or maybe today you say, you know, my master is Jesus. You've given your life to follow him, but there's still a part of you that wants to follow sin. I love what Alan said last week. He said, Many Christians live like prisoners who've been freed. The cell is unlocked. The door is open. But they choose to sit behind bars. It doesn't make any sense. If you've been freed from sin, then run away from it. Don't go back inside the cell. Don't put those chains back on. Don't live as a slave when you have freedom. Choose instead to obey God. Get in the canoe and paddle downstream. And experience God's grace. That's the way of freedom. That's the true meaning of that word grace. Grace frees us from our sin and frees us to be slaves to God. Grace is a continual transforming power working in your life even now. So will you abuse grace? Or will you use grace? To become more like Jesus and to find freedom in him. Let's go to the Lord now in prayer.